Today's scripture is from Matthew. We're going to read the resurrection story um, from Matthew's account. So we'll be in chapter 28. You can follow along up here with me. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of God for the people of God. And you all know how the saying goes, hindsight is what? 2020, right? It's easy for us to look back at like some event in our life or some event in our world and, and begin to like armchair quarterback it a little bit, you know, to look back and say, if I would have only known then what I know now, then I would have. And then we fill in the blank with some other action we would have taken. Uh, for example, if I would have known that I was going to lose that loved one, I would have spent more time with them. Or if I would have known that my flight was going to get delayed three times today, I would have just driven to my destination. Travel can be fun sometimes, right? Or if I had known that Kentucky, Arizona, Duke, and Kansas would all not get past the second round, I might have had a fighting chance in my uh, basketball bracket. I think uh, the person in ours that won picked their favorite mascot. I don't know. But... Um, we can kind of look back and we can start beating ourselves up for times at times, you know, saying, you know, I should have known that I should have known it was coming. But the truth of the matter is we did not have the benefit of hindsight in that moment. We were making the best decision we could with the best information that we had at that time. That's what the two Marys were doing that first Easter Sunday morning. The two Marys we believe to have been Mary Magdalene and most likely Mary, Jesus's mother, um, here in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we might look back on them heading their way to the tomb in this deep sadness and kind of say, what's wrong with y'all? Didn't y'all know he told you he's got to die and rise again? Haven't you watched him work all these miracles but that's really easy for us to say, right? After we've had the gospel writers connect all the dots for us and lay it out in this nice, neat narrative. After we have gotten to hear the story millions, if not billions or trillions of times over. What we have to remember is on this first Easter morning, these two Marys are walking after having watched up close and personal as this person who they loved was unjustly tried, um, bitterly beaten, callously crucified, and then hurriedly buried in a grave. 
They had witnessed this tragedy. They had witnessed this, this brutality with their very own eyes. He was supposed to be the one who had come and was going to set all things right in their lives and in their nation and in their world. But now something has gone terribly wrong. Their hope is gone. We aren't told much about this journey that they're taking to the tomb, only that at the very first opportunity, just as the sun is coming up, they are already on their way there to mourn, to grieve, to try to to make sense of all that had taken place. But if they were going there to the tomb to find this nice, quiet spot where they could sit and and just be in their sorrow, boy, were they in for a big surprise. (laughs) Because instead, they were greeted with earthquakes and angels and lightning. Oh, my. Followed by news that had to confound their minds. The angel said to them, he is not here. He has risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then as fast as they feel this this hope kind of welling up inside of them, this hope rising up, being revived and resurrected, before they're able to speak a word or respond in any kind of way, the angels are already sending them on their way to share this good news, this hope that they have found with others. The angel says, then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We hear this story and we all nod our heads along like, yeah, yeah, we know. We know how the story goes. But can you imagine for just a moment the confusion that those women had to be experiencing? What is playing out in that moment makes no logical or rational sense at all. Dead things stay dead. However, As this hope is is rising up inside of them, it moves them to action. It moves them to turn and to go, only to have their hope confirmed as they encounter Jesus, the one they had watched be tried and, and convicted and crucified and buried. Him standing right there in that moment, alive and well, redeemed and restored in that garden 2,000 years later, we know how the story ends. Jesus is resurrected. He is raised from the dead. Yay, right? But what we sometimes forget is that on that day in the past, our God was also giving us a picture of the future that he is moving us toward. On that day, Jesus, he didn't just defeat death once, but once and for all. On that day, Jesus overcame evil and darkness and brokenness, not just for himself, but for the whole world. Now it's just hanging on by a thread, standing on its last leg. On that day, Jesus put a stake in the ground that the worst thing will never be the last thing for us. And he gave us a glimpse of where this whole thing is headed. And do you know where that is? Love wins. Love wins. 
the same love that existed within God himself, between the persons of the Trinity, between God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit, the same love that could not be contained, that could not help but to overflow and create us. That same love is what is going to heal us and make us whole. It is that same love that will redeem and restore and resurrect every inch of creation, just like that love raised Jesus from the dead. We not only have the benefit of hindsight to that first Easter Sunday, but we have also been given insight into the future that God has for us. He has tipped his hand. And so here's my question. What changes now that we know love wins? Have you all ever been playing card, uh, cards and had a partner of yours maybe do this, like tip their hand, you know, letting you kind of play into it? Um, I'm going to have a confessional booth out in the Welcome Center following our services today. If anyone would like to come see me, uh, where's Sam Sparks? Sam Sparks, you'll be first in line, okay? Um, but you know how it goes. Maybe you're, you're in a tight game of spades or rook and, um, and, and it's getting a little tense and your partner picks up their hand and they take a glance and you see that like sly smile come across their face and they catch your eye and uh, then they bid real big and, and you start to get excited, right? Because like you already know you're going to win. And so it, it, what it does is it, it takes the pressure off a little bit and you just get to participate in what's playing out. Jeremy tipped his hand many, many years ago, more years than I care to admit, that he was going to propose to me. Um, he and I, we were uh, poor college students, uh, but we were going on a mission trip to the most romantic city in the world, Paris, France. And so how in the world could he pass that opportunity up, right? Uh, we haven't changed one bit, have we? <laughs> That's what, 23 years ago, 22 years ago? I don't know. But anyway, um, so we're getting ready to leave, and, it, and it, it, he's dropping these hints. So it becomes clear that, you know, it's not a matter of if, but when. And, and so we get there, and it becomes obvious that he is very excited about going to the Eiffel Tower, like even more than the normal tourists. So I, like, tuck that information away a little bit. Um, and finally, the night comes. It's time for our group to go to the Eiffel Tower. So we're on the metro, and uh, Jeremy has his camera bag in his hand, despite the fact that he has a backpack on his back, but he has this camera bag in his hand and he's got the strap wrapped around it like 14 times. There is no way anybody is taking that thing away from him. So again, like I noticed this. Interesting. Hmm. And so we get to the Eiffel Tower. Yay, right? And um, the plan was to take the elevator up to the top. And, and he was going to ask me there, I guess. But there was a really long line for that elevator that night. And uh, we only had so much time. And so suddenly he becomes very adamant that we at least like walk up part of the Eiffel Tower. And I have to tell you guys, if I wouldn't have had like some inkling of what was going to happen, I probably would have said no. Because if you, like me, have been to the Eiffel Tower, what I discovered is it's even bigger in person than I expected it to be, right? But... Because I had this idea that something really good awaited me if I climbed to the top, 
I gladly agreed to climb up the, uh, what was it, 674 steps. I looked it up to be sure, all right? Um, so we made it up the stairs, and we start to catch our breath, and we're taking pictures. They're terrible pictures, Jeremy. I pulled them out last night. All you see, they're not from a phone, but we'll get there. Uh, there's like a ch- chain link fence, you know, in front of us, and all you can see is like little lights in the distance. They're they're awful, but we're taking these pictures, and um, and suddenly Jeremy asked me to get some film out of his camera bag. Young people, you don't know what film is. Ask your parents when you get home today. But do y'all remember when that was a thing, okay? And so um, I open up the bag where the film is supposed to be, and there's the ring, right? Um, he asked. I said yes. And the rest is history, as they say. That is after we walk back down the 674 <laughs> steps. But the point is this, right? Like Jeremy had tipped his hand. I knew that love was going to win that night. I had this hope inside of me. And so I gladly participated and persevered even up and down the stairs. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God has tipped his hand. Evil will lose. Death itself will die. Hate will not get the final say at the end of the day. And so again, the question that is posed to us and that was also posed to the early church is this, what changes now that we know love wins? How will we participate and, and persevere in the present knowing where this thing is headed? You see, our hope is not some disembodied hope. Our hope is not some pie in the sky, in the sweet, by and by, um, warm, fuzzy feeling that we hold on to for ourselves until we get to heaven. No, our hope is alive and active. Our hope is a hope that is lived out in the attitudes and the actions of people. Our hope transforms things. The New Testament, it saw in the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, not just hope for life after death, but rather hope that crashes into the present. And how? Mostly through people like you and me who walk around carrying that hope inside of us and allow that hope to free us and to guide us. It is a hope that is enacted. It is a hope that is embodied. It is hope with legs, hope with heart, hope that is willing to make decisions and sacrifices for the sake of God and others. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it describes a people who live their lives differently because of this hope that lives inside of them. After spending 57 verses, that's a long time, 57 verses describing the hope of the resurrection, this is what Paul says. He says, in light of all of that, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What changes if we know love wins? Well, Paul says, first of all, we are undeterred by adversity, that we like dig our heels in, that we become immovable. He says, we work enthusiastically, we abound, we overflow in the work of the Lord. We love people extravagantly just like he does. Why? Because we understand that we are holding out hope in history. 
because we know where this thing is headed, because we know that every act of love that we do in Jesus' name is a part of this larger victory that our God is working. We know that what we are doing is not wasted. It is not in vain. On Tuesday, July 9th, 1737, Um, There was a young man that was 26 years old um, named George Schmidt, who was a Moravian missionary. And on that day, he landed on the shores of uh, Cape Town, South Africa. He moved to a place that was known as the Valley of Baboons. And he set up there the very first Protestant mission that was in that part of Africa. He built himself a home and he planted a pear tree in his little garden. And he started to to serve there. He he befriended a a group of native people who had been displaced. He started teaching them about agriculture and how to read and write. And um, he shared with them the love and the hope that he'd found in Jesus. And after five years of living among them and loving them and serving them, eventually a small group of people responded to that and were baptized. However, Um, evidently those baptisms were uh, not officially authorized by the church. That's a whole thing we can get into some other time, but it kind of got him into trouble. And so uh, for bureaucratic and red tape reasons, Schmidt had to leave South Africa just six years after he'd arrived there. And you have to wonder, like, as he went back home and as he lived out the rest of his life, how he looked back on his time there in the Valley of Baboons? Did he see it as a failure? Did it seem to him like his work had been in vain? What we know is 50 years later, um, and after Schmidt had died, there was another group of Moravian missionaries that went back to this valley. And whenever they got there, what they found was the ruins of George Schmidt's house. But beside the ruins stood that pear tree that he had planted. It had grown big and large and was fruitful. And then they soon met an old woman named Magdalena, named after the very first person who encountered the risen Christ, Mary Magdalene, who happened to be one of those few people that George Schmidt had baptized 50 years before. And she still had in her possession a now well-worn Bible that he had given her. And for the last 50 years, she had been gathering people underneath that pear tree and telling them the story of Jesus. Those 50 years of preparation, they had plowed the ground for renewal. That second group of Moravian missionaries that came in, they continued Schmidt's work. They created this community that was self-sufficient and literate and, and um, agriculture that had this strong spiritual life. And the governor of the area, he started to take notice of this. So much so was he impressed with what was happening there that he gave this place a new name. No longer was it known as the Valley of Baboons. He named it Ginnendal in 1806, which means Valley of Grace. Even more remarkable, almost 200 years later, as apartheid came to an end after these years of horrific violence and, and racism in South Africa, and as Nelson Mandela became the very first black president, one of the first official things he did was to change the name of the residence of the president's home uh, from Westbrook to Ginnendal. Valley of Grace, claiming this this story of transformation for that entire nation. This is resurrection hope. That people like you and me would hold out hope into our valleys 
that they might become places of grace because we know that we know that we know how the story will end. Love wins. Of course, Paul, he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians because he knew that this wouldn't always be easy for us. Because he knew that, that we, it would be tempting for us not to live out our lives in this way with hope. He knew that instead of being strong and immovable, it would be easy for us to give, give up and give out and give in. He knew that instead of us being all in, it would be easy for us to just like dip our toe in and, and hold back. He knew that instead of knowing what we do matters, at times we would struggle to hold out that hope, especially in these in-between times when it can feel like darkness and hate and brokenness are gaining ground. In this in-between time where God has started to play his hand, but he hasn't fully played it out yet. However, the resurrection of Jesus in the past can give us confidence in the present that our God is indeed at work resurrecting all things around us. We can participate and we can persevere knowing that every act of love will stand the test of time. You know, earlier today we saw that video about Hotel Inc. And, uh, and, and I, I wonder if you all know how that started. You know, was it like some big organization that dreamt it up and put it into place? Was it some organization that existed somewhere else that just expanded what it was doing here in our community? No. Hotel Inc. began 40 some odd years ago through simple prayers of a small group of people who had gathered for Bible study and who began to, to dare to wonder what they could do to impact poverty in our community. That was the seed that was planted. And look what it's grown into today. What about us? We might not know exactly how God is going to take our care, how he's going to take our prayers, how he's going to take our actions, our art, our songs, our honesty, our gifts, our lives, and use them as a part of him bringing all things back to life. That's one place where we don't have the benefit of hindsight. But we can love boldly, knowing that God can and he will use them for his purposes. Tomorrow, you will likely go back to, to work or to school. And as you do, the question that follows you there is, what changes now that we know love wins? We celebrate the resurrection today on Sunday so that on Monday, we can go back into the places where we live and we can love like every action of kindness we show is changing the world, joining God as he plays out his hand and following the example of our Savior, whose greatest act of love was him laying down his own life that we might live. Every time we come to this table, we remember that great love that we have been shown. And so as we prepare to come, would you pray with me, please? Lord God, when everything seemed utterly dark, and when it seemed like the sun would never, ever shine again, your love broke through. Your love was too strong. Your love was too wide. Your love was too deep for death to hold. The sparks cast by your love danced and spread and burst forth with resurrection light. Glorious God, we praise you for the light of your hope that was made possible through your son, Jesus. We praise you for the light of your hope that shone to those first witnesses of resurrection. We praise you for the light of your hope that continues to shine into our hearts today. We pray that this Easter hope 
will live in each of us, that we would become bearers of that hope into the lives of others. Amen.